What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast once again this week as we continue our series in Relationships 101. Today is our last week in the series. Um, Kind of a heavy topic today, for sure. We've got some big ones coming over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking into the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. Looking forward to that. Um, So if you would, if you're the praying kind of person, I would certainly appreciate your prayers. I pray for you guys daily. You're in my daily prayer list. Uh, Just a few things that you might pray for. Um, As I put this together each week, I pray for understanding and clarity. Uh, I pray for God to work through it. I pray for intentionality on the part of those who hear it, that it might help people. And that transformation might happen, might help to transform lives. And certainly would appreciate it if you would pray for the podcast and for myself. Like I say, I pray for you guys. Um, today's our last day in our relationship series, Relationships 101. In our first week, we talked about our most important relationship, our relationship with Jesus. And then we moved on to the relationship of friendship, then husbands, wives, children, and parents. And today we wrap up our series with the topic that Paul wraps up his instruction for households in the book of Ephesians chapter six, and that is slaves and masters. I suppose, like I said, this is a very charged topic, but you could maybe make some application to the workplace. I've kind of heard that done with this before in the past. Hopefully you don't feel like a slave where you work. And if you're a business owner or manager, you don't uh, treat your employees like slaves. Now it may sound strange, but I think the principles of this particular passage, as we dig into it, we will find that they very well might have the most broad application of any topic that we've addressed in this series so far. But let's go ahead and read our scripture from Ephesians chapter six. We're gonna read verses five through nine and then we'll take some time and talk about them. This is what they say. And this is Paul writing to the Ephesians uh, starting in verse five of chapter six. It says, servants, obey those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as to Christ not serving wiser on you, but as pleasing men as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing any man does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is enslaved or free. Verse nine, and masters, do the same things for them, no longer threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. As I mentioned, we'd be hard-pressed to find a topic that carries more baggage, invokes more emotion than this particular topic. Um, Christians have wrestled with this topic for a long time. Um, Sometimes critics use this topic um, to, oh, I, I suppose, attempt to discredit Scripture in some ways. But in today's passage, Paul discusses the relationship between slaves and masters. We read that word, um, servant uh, from our passage is what we read. It's been translated in this particular translation, the modern English version is servant. 
Uh, it's also been ser- translated as bond servant and slave, depending on which translation we might read. It's been applied in different situations to those who serve others, sometimes by choice, sometimes not. Now, the word translated as servant in this passage is the word doulos. Maybe you've heard that word before. And the definition of doulos is this. It is of being in a servile condition, enslaved, performing the service of a slave, figuratively, of unquestioning obedience in either a good or bad sense, subservient, enslaved, subject, serving obedience to the will of another. Now, the word servant in our passage is not a wrong way to translate the word. A servant can be a slave. A slave can be a servant. In translation, you have to make decisions to use the words you do. I used to do some translating myself, and sometimes more than one word will work, and you kind of have to decide what fits with the context as best you can. But very simply, in this case, the word means slave. It really does, which can you know cause a lot of difficulties. Uh, but that word slave means exactly what you think it means. It means slave. Uh, we are automatically are appalled by the thought of slavery, and, and rightly so. Maybe that's why translators decided to use words like bondservant and servant instead of the word slave. But as difficult as the word slave is, and all of the negativity that comes with it, as many attempts have been made to explain this word, to explain how it's applied, it really does just mean slave. And that means what you think it means. Now, the struggle is, what do we do with that? Slavery is a difficult topic. In our culture, slavery is evil. It's never okay in any form, and rightly so. Uh, Today, there are an estimated somewhere between 21 and 45 million people who are slaves. So you could just about say the entire population of Australia uh, is enslaved somewhere in the world. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday. We think that Uh, Modern Western culture is often free of slavery, but that's just not the case. Um, In Australia, there are somewhere as many, estimated as many as 40,000 slaves. Sometimes it's called modern day slavery or human trafficking, but it's all slavery. And we know it's all evil and it's all wrong. However, that being said, had we grown up and lived in the culture of Ephesus when Paul wrote this, we wouldn't have given it a second thought. We'd see it as normal, everyday power of life. Or of course, you know, we'd all like to think otherwise that we wouldn't see it that way. But the reality is, is that we would almost certainly be just like everyone else and see slavery as a part of life and how things work. So the word servant means slave. And in Ephesus, slavery was an accepted reality. So the last relationship we're talking about in this series is the one between slaves and masters. And there are a few practical applications we could make in this passage and the way you know we conduct ourselves, not just doing what we should be doing when people are watching, but doing our best all of the time because we know the Lord sees everything we do. But I do believe that a far more broad and more complex application exists with this passage. The slaves Paul mentions were Christians, obviously. They were part of this church in Ephesus. They were considered property by their masters, just like we think a slave would be. From what I've read, there may have been many slaves in this early church. One book I was reading said that in many cities in Asia Minor, slaves outnumbered freemen. And 
that's an interesting thing to think about. Now, I'm not making light of that in any way. I hope that you don't think or feel that way. We can be happy about these slaves in Ephesus that they were able to come to know Jesus, hear the gospel, be part of this church. That's a positive. But there is a difficult part to this too. And Paul also writes to those who are slave masters. He writes to slaves and masters. Both the slaves and the masters are Christian. And that's where the challenge comes in. See, biblical texts are not addressed to non-Christians. Sometimes we want to apply biblical text to the secular world, but biblical text is not addressed to the secular world. It's addressed to Christians. The gospel is for the world. The Bible is for Christians. Let's think about it. A, a few things as we dig into this. There's a, a, a lot of front ports to build on this, I guess you could say. Christianity in this day, as we're reading this, is a new belief system. It's growing rapidly. One thing that Christianity has always done and always will do in many ways is be relevant to the culture of the day. But at the same time, it has always also conflicted uh, in many ways with secular culture, and it still does. So it's it's relevant to culture, but it also is often counterculture. And Christianity has come to Ephesus, a major city where the culture sanctioned, sanctioned slavery. It was utterly uncontested. Nobody would have questioned it. It's just the way life worked. And Paul is writing a letter to the Christians in Ephesus with instructions on many things. There's a lot more to this book than just this passage, obviously. And one of the things he's writing about is relationships. As we've talked about the past few weeks, husbands, wives, parents, children, and now the one between slaves and masters. To our contemporary minds, there seems to be a glaring omission in this passage, especially where Paul comes to the part where he addresses slaves and masters. Why doesn't Paul address the slave owners and tell them to release their slaves from bondage and explain to them that owning human beings as property is wrong? Why doesn't he do that? Because he clearly does not do that. And as we read the New Testament, we enjoy the benefit of looking back over millennia of you know hundreds of years of Christian teaching, Christian belief, Bible study, all these different things. But what we see happening as we read Ephesians is all brand new. And I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we forget that as it's happening, as it's being written, this is all new stuff. There are gonna be new convictions, a plethora of questions, there's going to be cultural shifts and concerns over a multitude of topics and social issues, including slaves and masters. And another thing to remember about the church in Ephesus, they didn't have a Bible either. They had this one letter from Paul, and that was it. That's all they had. Why doesn't Paul address slave owners? Or some might wonder even why doesn't he tell the slaves to flee or to rebel against their masters? But the problem with that is that's never a biblical solution for any issue, any social issue. You know, it might be a solution for dealing with sin and our own carnal desires, rebelling against, you know, our own flesh or fleeing from sin, but it's never a solution for social issues. Matter of fact, the book of Philemon was written as a result of a slave who ran away from his master. Philemon came to know Jesus through Paul and he opened his home to a group of Christians so they could meet in his home as a church. 
And Onesimus was a slave owned by Philemon. And Onesimus apparently stole something from Philemon and he ran away to Rome where, guess who he bumps into? He comes into contact with Paul. And in time, Onesimus, he also becomes a Christian. And Onesimus helped Paul out while he was in prison. And Paul knew that um, Philemon had been wronged by Onesimus. He'd stolen from him, he'd ran away. And and he also knew that that needed to be reconciled. So Paul sent him back to his master. Now, that's not something we would expect. The book of Philemon is the letter Paul sent with Onesimus to give to Philemon when he sent him back to his master. And he encourages him in that letter to consider how the gospel transforms lives, it transforms relationships, and how it had transformed himself and Onesimus. So he encourages Onesimus not just uh, to take, or he encourages Philemon not just to take Onesimus back as his slave, but as his beloved brother in Christ. So we see in scripture here and elsewhere that slavery was a culturally accepted institution. Doesn't make it right. Scripture doesn't say it's right, but scripture does recognize it as a reality. Now, the Bible never formally approves of slavery, but the difficult thing for many is that it never formally condemns it either. Now, why not? If Paul is such a great Christian, a missionary, an apostle, all these great things, why didn't he act as an abolitionist and speak out against it? Why did he send Anisimus back to his master? In our time and culture, how do we as Christians address this, you know, and what's happening? How do we go about understanding and addressing biblical beliefs, morality, and slavery, and working all those things out? And I believe I have an answer to that question. Some may not find it fully satisfactory, and it's not necessarily an easy answer, but it is an answer. And I believe there are principles that you and I can draw from this that apply to all of our relationships and how we interact with everyone. Of course, today we live in a culture where we believe slavery is horrific and wrong in every possible way, obviously, not because we are morally superior to the people in Ephesus, but because cultures taught us that. We don't want to, I think of C.S. Lewis who called it chronological snobbery when we think we're better than people in the past. That's not the case. We're not any different than the people in Ephesus in regards to our morality, but we've been shaped by a different culture. And culture is extremely powerful. Not that we would want to, but if you were to try to change the current cultural mindset about slavery in Western culture, it would be next to impossible to do that. And, you know, that's good. We're not not saying that's a bad thing, but people find acceptable and unacceptable whatever their culture tells them is acceptable and unacceptable. And they are extremely unlikely to attempt to live in a way that is counter-cultural. But you see, Christianity, since the day Jesus was walking along the shores of Galilee and said to some fishermen, hey, come follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men, has been counter-cultural. The architect of our modern Western culture is the moral principles found in Scripture. It does not matter if a person is an atheist, agnostic, or cult member. If they grew up in Western culture, their morality has been shaped by biblical principles. One of the first things we learn in Scripture is that God created the man and the woman in his image. 
Genesis chapter one, verse 27, very first chapter of the Bible. And that verse shows us that all people have have bestowed upon them because they have been created in the image of God, equality and value. Even if people don't make the connection, in our culture, that's why we think all people have equal value and inherent value. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. Some people might say, well, knowing that all people are valuable is just inherent. No, no, it's not inherent. When you take being created in God's image out of the equation, there's no longer any reason to believe or think anyone is inherently value. Of course, we'll say, well, I feel that way. I think that way. That's just inherent, but it's not. Culture has taught us that, a culture based on the moral precepts of Scripture. And when you take that out of the equation, well, people lose their value. And that's why slavery has and still does exist in places in the world. Now, because everyone is created in God's image, we know that people are all valuable, whether slave, free, Jew, Gentile, the Bible talks about it in several places. The Bible also says God is not a respecter of persons. Paul writes the book of Philemon, comparing a slave and a master as brothers in Christ. He does the same thing in this passage. We know from scripture that it is wrong for one person to own another's property. Everyone has inherent value as they are created in the image of God. And it would be a lack of that knowledge that would lead to condoning slavery. And that is Ephesus, a culture that condones slavery and doesn't understand all people are created in God's image, at least not yet. And in that culture, slavery was an accepted cultural norm. No one was bothered by the fact that people were owned as property. Christianity is new. Christians are new. Churches are new. They didn't have a Bible as we do. And once someone comes to know Jesus, and comes into the fellowship of local church, they don't just automatically leave behind their past and their culture. You just, you know, maybe some of it, but you just don't drop drop your previous culture, all your baggage from the rest of your life, and all of a sudden it's just all gone. It doesn't work like that. Um, if you've been part of a church for any amount of time, you've seen that happen. I know I've seen that a lot with people over the years. They'll come into church and, Uh, they might be a saved believer, a new Christian, but they still bring a lot of their old stuff with them. And over time, through the process of sanctification, spiritual growth, learning, they change and they drop off some of those things that are are not so great. And the people coming to know Christ, being saved and becoming part of the church in Ephesus, frankly, they probably didn't give slavery a second thought because it was such a cultural norm. And now that's, that sounds shocking. We might all like to think that if we lived in Ephesus, things would have been different. I would have spoken out against slavery, as horrible as it sounds. No, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't. Um, if you look back at World War II, for instance, Nazi Germany, we'd all like to think that we would have been the people helping Jews and um, protecting Jews and all of that kind of thing. But when you look at the reality of it and the people who actually did that statistically, um, any one of us doing that is, the chances of that is almost nil. Now, as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, and admittedly, I don't know his mind, but Paul was a brilliant and well-traveled man. He was very culturally astute. I like to think he understood this dilemma, and he also understands his purpose. Paul has a firm grasp on the gospel. 
Christ and him crucified is Paul's first and foremost priority, as it has been for believers for millennia. It's the gospel that perpetuates Christianity, not morality, not social justice, not politics, not a fight against wokeness or for wokeness, whatever, who knows what these days, prosperity preaching, anything else like that. It is the gospel that perpetuates Christianity. You, if you're a Christian, I am. If you are, you and I are here now because our Christian ancestors kept that focus. That's just reality. That's not to say social issues are unimportant. Christians have always been at the forefront of helping people in need. It's not to say that addressing social issues and people in need is not an important part of our ministry as Christians, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is always at the forefront. And there's a profound lesson for all believers in all that we do. In our relationships with everyone and in every way we relate to the world, this is a question we need to ask. Is Jesus Christ the epicenter of our faith, our philosophy, and our worldview? Do all things flow from him? If what we do flows from a desire to do good and moral things instead of a desire to live in obedience to Christ, that we're just, we become a charity or a social club, not a church. And those are not bad things. They're good things. Social clubs are good. Charities are good. Serving our community to address social issues is, is a good thing, but it's not the main thing. And we, we have to think, is our desire for those in our community to know Christ or is it for them to know that we're great people? There are good things for us to do, but the things of this world are temporary and Jesus Christ is preeminent and he is eternal. There are many things about Christianity that are counterculture. And if you're gonna swim upstream against culture, you're gonna have to do so wisely and pace yourself and keep Christ as the focus. Otherwise, you're gonna drown and get washed down straight. And that's why many Christians and Churches struggle to have an impact. That's why they kind of become impotent in social justice, politics, battle against wokeness, whatever it might be, prosperity. They replace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul addresses slavery, but he doesn't condemn or condone the institution of slavery. Okay, he understands the culture and that the gospel must remain central. If he had come right out and gone directly after slavery, what would have happened? Well, for one, the new believers would have had difficulty understanding why this was a big deal to Paul. Okay, they didn't know yet. But they probably would have acted on it without wisdom or patience. And in their maturity, immaturity, as Christians often tend to do, they would have pushed the gospel to the side and become an anti-slavery social institution rather than a church preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, would have been become completely impotent. Paul doesn't say or do anything that would prompt a revolution or rebellion against authority. And the, that's a hard pill to swallow for us today in our culture because we're, you know, we've had the scripture for so long and we understand these things so well and people created the image of God that it's hard for us to understand. Why didn't Paul just come out and tell him to stop it? Social action is much easier than keeping Jesus at the center of all things and taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Any social action 
the Ephesians would have taken, wouldn't have mattered anyway. Christianity had no cultural influence at the time. It was a tiny little new group of people. You see, we have the luxury of living in a world where Christianity has been a major cultural influence for so long that we forget there are other possibilities. Something I believe about how God is working in this passage. And, you know, and, and Paul might understand this too as he writes, but as Christianity grows and flourishes, people learn, understand more and more as they are sanctified and mature in their spirituality, as they keep Christ at the center. And they learn from keeping Christ at the center of all things that everyone is subject and subordinate to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, as Christians and churches do that, what's going to happen is that the institution of slavery will gradually be undermined and removed by the Christian principles that we learn in Scripture. And then, well, we'll be living in a world like we do in Western culture today where we find slavery completely appalling. Now, yes, unfortunately, we live in a broken world and some lived as slaves um, in Ephesus and other parts of the world who did not know the benefits that Christianity would eventually bring to culture. Christianity is a system of faith that often involves an institute change, but it's not a system of rebellion. It takes time. Hence, Paul doesn't encourage rebellion, which some might expect, but he encourages obedience. He puts boundaries on the relationship between slaves and masters, just like we've been talking about with all the other relationships we've talked about. God puts boundaries around those relationships. And he does so until scriptural principles will eventually erode the institution of slavery. Paul doesn't do away with the institution, but he definitely changes the paradigm of the relationship. And eventually, biblical principles did take hold. And that's the reason we combat human trafficking and slavery today, because of biblical principles. Remember why God has given us commands and moral precepts. They are the best way to navigate a lost and broken world. But unfortunately, some don't adhere to those principles. Even worse than, let's just call it what it is, there have been those in history who've twisted scripture to justify evil. In the land where I grew up, in the United States of America, there were churches, churches that supported slavery and twisted scripture to do that. And this is one of the passages that they used. But Christians worked against that. I've read about several abolitionists and everyone I've read about was a Christian who said it was their faith that led them to act against slavery. Paul addresses the relationship between slaves and masters while navigating the culture and staying true to biblical principles. He tells slaves, obey your masters according to the flesh. Now that word master is the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. That's applied to Jesus in some places in scripture. He says, servants, obey your masters according to the flesh. And Paul shows us there's a distinction here and now and between the here and now and the eternal and the spiritual. They're your masters according to the flesh for now, but Christ is your true master. Now, if you were a slave, in Ephesus, what do you think would be the best way possible to navigate the relationship with your master? Because that, that relationship is not going to end immediately. Would it be to be burdensome, lazy, with a rebellious attitude, run away, 
how would that relationship go once you were caught and returned home? Would that make your life better? Paul says to serve your master as though you're serving the Lord. That would be the best way forward right here and right now. May not be the best way forward forever, but it's the best way to navigate the relationship at the moment. And verse eight says, knowing that whatever good thing any man does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is enslaved or free. Even if your master in the flesh doesn't reward you, Paul says, if you do good, your Lord in heaven will. And you see how Paul is, is he's beginning to teach equality in that verse between slaves and masters. He says, you know, whatever you do, you're, if you do good things, you're going to receive good things from God, whether you're a slave or a master. It works the same way for both. And then he says this in verse nine, and masters do the same things for them, no longer threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven and there is no partiality in him. Paul tells the slave masters to act within the boundaries of a Christian relationship, just like he tells the slaves to do knowing that they both share the same master in heaven. Now that that may not seem like much to us when we read that, but Paul just dropped a bomb on the culture of the day. Paul might not address this uh, the way our modern culture thinks he should after we've had the, the luxury of living in a culture shaped by Christian values for centuries, but he most assuredly does address it. He may not tell them to do away with the institution of slavery yet because he knows what's going to happen, but he completely shifts the paradigm of the relationship. In the day's culture, what Paul writes would have been very offensive for slaves to have a calling from God and then to put slaves and masters on equal footing would have been absolutely scandalous to tell slaves and masters they're both subservient to the same master, to tell a master that he has a master who has also bought him for a price, whether a slave or a master, the best way to navigate life in a broken world is to live within the boundaries of God's good commands. How everyone treats anyone is prescribed and judged by God because everyone is made in his image. Jesus knows about cultural turmoil. He knows about problems. He knows about issues. He knows about the things that you think about, the things that you find frustrating about the culture as a Christian. He still expects us to keep the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of our focus. Paul tells slaves to obey your masters according to the flesh. The flesh is temporary. It's here and now. It's not forever and always. There's an understanding in that. There's an encouragement in that. And for some There is a warning in that. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He shed his blood for the payment for sins. When we recognize our sin and need for a savior, we can find that savior in Christ. Everyone, see, everyone's gonna spend eternity somewhere. When you go back to the creation story again, circle back around to the book of Genesis and you read when God created Adam and Eve, when he created Adam, he breathed, life into Adam. He breathed eternal life into Adam. And whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, everyone spends eternity somewhere. Everyone is an eternal being. There is something after this life, regardless of whether you know Jesus or not, everyone spends eternity somewhere, either in the kingdom of heaven or the eternal pit of hell. Now, Imagine a slave in Ephesus who lived in terrible circumstances, but was a saved believer. 
had an awful master, but he trusted Christ, still had to endure a worse life than most of us could imagine. He lived that life in obedience as he was instructed by Paul, making it was that would have made it the best it could be in the hope that this life is only temporary, believing that, knowing that day by day. Now that slave, obviously, he was a slave in Ephesus at the time this was written. He's long since dead, but now imagine that slave with Jesus. Imagine how everything is infinitely better for that slave now. Now, on the other side of that, imagine a wealthy slave owner in Ephesus who becomes a Christian and he's, you know, had plenty of money, never had any problems. Slaves did all the work for him. And now he's with the Lord too. You know what? Everything is infinitely better for him as well. But whatever position you are in in this life, it's temporary. It's not forever. And this life has its ups and downs. It's good and bad things. It's often difficult. But as a Christian, this world is not our home. It's only temporary. For someone who's not a Christian, very wealthy, imagine this, able just to indulge every whim, every carnal desire to seemingly live without boundaries and consequences, live however they like. You know what? That's only temporary too. And we are all created in the image of God. We all enter this world and leave this world in the exact same way. The circumstances in between vary, but nobody's getting out of here alive. However good or bad your situation is, today is mostly irrelevant in eternity. Things will be infinitely better with Jesus in eternity or infinitely worse without him in eternity. So something I want you to think about. Maybe that's the first time you've heard that presented that way. Do you think about eternity? What's Where am I going to spend eternity? Because everybody's going to spend it somewhere and you can spend it with Jesus in heaven when you recognize your need for a savior and you turn to him and his shed blood on the cross, trusting him to be your savior and put your faith in him. And you can do that where you are right now. And I would certainly encourage you to do so. Until next week. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 